will be reading 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15 to 23. The destruction of Jerusalem. But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or young women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned all its palaces, and destroyed all its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath, the rest of all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. The Decree of Cyrus. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord his God be with him. Thank you. Just give him a round of applause. I think that's the first time Armin has read. And uh, we shall make a preacher out of him. Uh, speaking of making preachers out of people, um, one of the things that I forgot to mention before, but it is significant for our congregation, is that yesterday, uh, Tim, uh, Tim Gray, who most of you, all of you know, perhaps, um, uh, had his classes exam. So this is his final exam uh, before his ordination uh, to be a minister of the word and sacraments in our denomination. And unsurprisingly, Tim passed with flying colours. And so if you want to reach out and send him a text message, uh, that would be great. So that was in WA yesterday uh, where they examined him. So, um, yeah, I just think it's good to acknowledge these things and to praise the Lord for them because there is another man now who uh, will serve the Lord as, um, yeah, as, as a minister, and, and that's a good thing. So um, uh, we're looking this morning at the end of two chronicles. And it uh, made me think of this question of how, how good are we at being patient? You know, being patient is part of showing the fruit of, of the Holy Spirit. You know, you have love, joy, peace. Patience is the fourth one in the list. So how good are we really at waiting? You know, we, we all know uh, the, the joke, the story of the person who was impatient and knew it, and so they prayed to God, Lord, please give me pr- uh, patience, but do it straight away. 
And I had a similar experience. I prayed for patience, and so the Lord gave me four small children. You must be careful what you pray for. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, as people, we, we struggle to wait, don't we? Our world is an instant world. We don't wait for pretty much anything these days. If you want to watch a movie, you don't even have to drive to the cinema anymore. You can just stream it straight to your TV. In fact, many movies now are released simultaneously to the streaming service and the cinema at the same time because the, the producers know that really people, uh, they, they just want it straight away. They want it now. If you want information, you can Google it. Look it up on Wikipedia. If you want food, Uber Eats or Deliveroo or DoorDash will deliver it to you within half an hour. If you're really old school, you might actually go through the drive-thru instead. If you order something online, you can pick it up within two hours by click and collect. Or if you're really keen, you can probably have it delivered through Uber Deliveries now and it'll be at your door within two hours if you're willing to pay for it. Pretty much the only thing I could think of that we don't like instant is our coffee. And even there we get a bit testy when it takes more than a couple of minutes to make at the cafe, right? So how well do you go at waiting? Consider what's happening in your heart if you were to encounter the following scenario. You're in a doctor's office, you're in the waiting room, the doctor is uh, running late, very late, Uh, You've been sitting there for an hour already. What's going on in your mind, in your heart at at that time? Are you thankful that God has arranged things just so that you have the opportunity to see what's new with the National Geographic from 2002? Are you grateful for the opportunity to be in community with the other people in the waiting room? Perhaps even striking up a conversation with them, having the time now, actually, because you've been there for an hour, to really listen to their life story, hoping for the opportunity to invite them to church. Is that, is that, what, is that what is going on in your heart? Are you contemplating, perhaps, hyperventilating just to get some attention? Waiting on a doctor is fairly trivial kinds of waiting. At worst, Waiting at a doctor's office is an inconvenience for you. What about the more significant waitings that we have to do in life? You know, things where we have to wait on others and on the Lord. Maybe you're a single person and you're watching all your friends get married and your family get married and you're wondering what does the Lord have in store for you? Or maybe you're waiting to see the specialist after a medical scan knowing that whatever the results are, they will drastically change your life. How, how well do you wait on the Lord in that moment? What does waiting on the Lord look like when you've been struggling to have children and you desperately want to start a family and yet another pregnancy test comes back negative? And those are just the things we want for ourselves. What about the promises that God makes, his word, makes in his word, that he's going to come and write his law on my heart, you know, fix our sinful desires and finally change us from the inside? What about the times when we feel spiritually dry or empty or distant from God? How do we wait upon the Lord in faith in these moments? when really all you want is the spiritual vigour to work for him. 
What does waiting on the Lord look like when the person in whom you have invested years and years and hours and hours into, who you pray for daily, who you desperately want to come to know the Lord, uh, keeps on rejecting the faith? What does waiting on the Lord in hope look like then? Well, friends, actually, I think the book of Chronicles gives us some advice. It helps us answer this question. Now, when you read the story, perhaps you're thinking, well, I thought we had already dealt with the exile, you know, as we've been travelling from garden to garden city. Why do we need to hear about the destruction of Jerusalem again? That was like three weeks ago. Well, friends, actually, Chronicles is quite different in the way that it works. Um, And so today we're going to be looking actually at the end of the Old Testament. So we're going to finish our Old Testament uh, part of of this series today. Now, I realise that we haven't dealt with Psalms and Job and the, uh, you know, the prophets and Proverbs and so on. Uh, and that's because they're not narrative books. So they don't tell the bigger picture story. They're kind of commentary, theological commentary on what's happening in the story. Um, so today we're going to be finishing the Old Testament. Now, I don't really uh, have time to go into why this is the case, but the book of Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible is the last book of the Old Testament. In our Bibles, it comes straight after Kings, but uh, in the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament. And I think that's actually the right place to have it. Now, this is significant because Chronicles has a lot of the same information as the books of Kings, but actually it's a very different book with a very different purpose. Now, what the book of Kings sets out to do is to give us a historic account of how each of the kings of Israel, both the northern kingdom and the kings in Judah, how well they go. There's like an analysis of how, you know, if the king obeyed the Lord or not, and then what happened in his reign. And so the book of King tells us about the northern kings uh, and how none of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on to tell us about the southern kings and how some of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but most of them didn't. And it really is giving us this historical account of just what happened during the day. But Chronicles is a very different book. Chronicles is written to make a theological point, not a historical one. The author of Chronicles starts his book with the word Adam. So he goes right back to the beginning of uh, of the Old Testament, right back to Genesis, And uh, he looks back on the history of all of Israel. Now he's writing after the Jews had already returned back from Israel. He's writing after the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the temple has already been rebuilt. The people have already come back into the land. And he has seen, like the author of Nehemiah, the end where all of these reforms have actually failed. And so... What the writer of Chronicles is wanting to do is he wants us to understand that what he's doing is he's looking over the history of Israel and thinking about why Israel is in the state that it's in. He wants to make a theological point, and the point point is this. He wants us to understand that Israel, Judah, is still waiting for that one who was to come. They are in this waiting period for a better, true king, for a Messiah. 
for someone to come and lead Israel out of the situation they really have been in right from Adam all the way through to the rebuilding of the temple at the end of the book of Nehemiah. In essence, the book of Chronicles is, um, uh, sums up all of the Old Testament and gives us a prologue then to the New Testament. And that's why I think it's rightly placed at the end of the Old Testament. Now, we see a number of unique things in Chronicles, and I'll quickly run through these because they're interesting. Uh, firstly, in Chronicles, there's no mention of any of the northern kingdoms, uh, northern kings of Israel. So while it's got a lot of the same information as, as the book of Kings, it completely erases all of the stuff about the northern kingdom. Why? Because the northern kingdom is irrelevant because they wait, is waiting for a Messiah to come, and the Messiah would come from the line of David, which is in the southern kingdom. The prophets had declared that the, the Messiah would come from David's line, and so he doesn't waste any paper writing about the northern kingdoms. He also puts the line of David in a much better light. So all of the stories of David's weaknesses are taken out. Any, there's no mention of his adultery with Bathsheba, his moral failings are gone. All the issues with David are taken out, not because he's trying to cover them up, because he knows people can just go back a few books and read you know, Samuel and see all of what happened. But he's trying to establish that it is from the line of David, the line of kings, that the Messiah would be coming. He's telling us that when the Messiah comes, he comes as one who fulfills the pattern set by David. A better David, yes, but a Davidic figure nonetheless. And so this whole book is about waiting for the coming Messiah, waiting for the one who would be the better David. Now, as I said, this book is written after the exiles had already returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. The writer knows that uh, the exile didn't actually work. He had seen all the reforms that Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah brought in and how they all failed. How the people once again broke their covenant with God. He's read the prophets, he's read the history, he surveys all of Israel's past and he points forward saying, um, all of what's happened before is just helping us wait for the Messiah. We're actually still waiting, he says, for the promises made to Adam and Eve that one day one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. We are still waiting for the Messiah. And then in a master stroke of historical writing, he does something crazy. Having looked back over all of Israel's history, having made the point powerfully that they're still waiting for one who's going to be a better David, one who's going to come from the line of David who will come and save Israel, he's proven that Israel needs a better king. He goes on and I think he wins the Pulitzer Prize for writing you know, in 400 B.C., he ends his book in the middle of a sentence. He ends it with a, a dot, dot, dot. Now, our English translations don't end like that because we don't read Hebrew. Um, but he ends the, <coughs> the whole Old Testament halfway through a sentence. It's like if you read Lord of the Rings and Gollum and Frodo are there on the precipice and they're about to throw the ring into Mount Doom and so Gollum jumps on Frodo's back and he falls over, he topples, he's about to drop over the cliff and the book ends. That's how the Old Testament ends. 
kind of on a cliffhanger, if you will. Now, we don't see this in our English translations because our translators have done their best to, to make this work in English. And so they've even changed the phrase around. So they've changed the end of the phrase and put it in the middle. Um, but you catch a glimpse of this even in our English. So if you've got your Bibles with you and you want to flip back to Ezra chapter 1, uh, that would be good. Now, Ezra is in the Old Testament. Um, and he is quoting that decree that King Cyrus made. And so he ends Chronicles by quoting the decree of King Cyrus. So verse 1, he says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and put it into writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, in Judah. Now, so far, they are exactly the same. Word for word, uh, the writer of Chronicles has copied Ezra. Then in verse 3, he says, Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go up to Jerusalem, in Judah, to build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And here he differs. He says, uh, this is, uh, so in Chronicles, we read, this is what the king Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a, a temple in Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people may, among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. And that's it. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says literally, And any of his people among you may his God be with him and may him go up to where? Ezra fills in the picture. May he go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build a house for the Lord. But the chronicle writer knows that the temple has already failed. He's not looking forward to a day when the temple will be rebuilt. Uh, having looked back on the words of Ezra and Nehemiah, he knows the second temple had already failed. He doesn't want the people to go home to build a house for the Lord, a temple for their salvation. He doesn't want people to go for, to look for God who is in Jerusalem, as Ezra has it. He wants us to understand clearly that the temple failed and something better than the temple was coming. Someone who was like David, but better than David. Someone who, who did stuff like the temple, but wasn't the temple. A Messiah who would come and deliver his people not out of exile from Babylon, but out of exile of the, of the sin that they're, uh, you know, because of their sin that's in their heart. One who would come to usher in a new era of God actually writing his laws on the hearts of his people and who would come and change people from the inside out. And so the Old Testament ends in an ellipsis, a, a dot, dot, dot. This grand epic tale that we have been following ends without a conclusion, looking for a resolution, looking in hope to the future and in faith to the future for one who was to come. And so how much more sense then does it make if you flip the page, you open the New Testament and the first line in the New Testament starts again with the genealogy showing that Jesus is the one who comes from the line of David, the King, the Messiah, who was finally here. Chronicles is an introduction, a prologue, to the book of Matthew. 
And so what are we to learn from this? How does this apply to us? What's the application? Well, I think Chronicles teaches us how to wait in the dot, dot, dot time. How to live in faith and hope in this in-between space. How to wait upon the Lord. If we are to do this well, friends, if we are to wait upon the Lord in faith well, we have to remember a couple of different truths. Truth number one is that God has never not fulfilled His promises. God has never not fulfilled His promises, i.e. He always keeps His promises. One of the problems of living in the in-between time is that we really want God to just get on with the the show, get on with it, you know. Step one of living in the in-between time is to remember in faith that God always fulfills His promises, always, always, always. How many times has God failed to do that? Zero times. He has never not come through. The first promise he makes way back in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve is that one day one would come who would crush the serpent's head. And one day, probably 4,000 years later, one did come who would ultimately defeat the power of sin and death. God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. He would give him the promised land that the whole world would be blessed through him and through his offspring. And as we've seen, that's what happened. God promised David that one of his descendants would reign forever. And even though it seemed like that promise was completely wiped out as Israel was carried off into Babylon, Jesus, this descendant of David, comes. And he sits enthroned beside God even today. Perhaps on a negative side, God promised Solomon that because of his sin, the kingdom would split apart in two and the northern kingdom Israel uh, would would be separated from the kingdom of Judah. And that's what happened? God promised through the prophet Isaiah that one day one would come, who this suffering servant who would take away the sins of his people, and Jesus came. God promised Ezekiel and Jeremiah that one day the Holy Spirit would come and, the, and people would finally love God because he would change their heart from the inside. And as we saw last week at Pentecost, that happened. In the in-between time, Friends, we have to hold on to the fact that God never fails to keep his promises. Never. That's the first truth. But the second truth we have to remember is that the promises in the Bible are not actually primarily about you. Waiting on the Lord, living in this in-between space in faith, is a lot easier if we don't believe that God owes us the things we think will make us happy. The story of Scripture is not about you, at least not primarily. It is the story of God and how God the Father glorifies God the Son through the people whom he chose before the foundation of the world to be his forever people. As the Son gives his life for those who came to save. That's what the Bible is about. That is God's story. The Bible is primarily God's story, not your story. Are we part of it? Absolutely. 
But you and I are not Adam and Eve. We're not Noah. We're not Moses. We're not David. We're not one of the prophets. We are not major characters in the plotline of Scripture. Even the greatest Christians, this side of Jesus, who you can think about, you know, the ones who really changed the world, are but minor characters in a much bigger play. Billy Graham is a single pixel dot on the canvas of, solution, of salvation. Spurgeon is but a speck. Wesley and Brother Yoon and Luther and Calvin and Kuiper are passing characters in God's big story. And if this offends you, if this sounds radical, it is because we have been so conditioned by the world to think that the world revolves around us. But the Bible is not primarily about you. Are we part of God's story? Yes, we are. If you are a believer, you are one of his children. You have been adopted into his family. You are a co-heir with Christ. But you are that only because of the main story, because of what Jesus has already done. The story is ultimately about him. And so the promises in Scripture normally point us to Christ. They are true because of him. They draw their power from him and his work on the cross. And maybe this is challenging to us, but I'd like to suggest to you that this is actually very comforting. Because when we remember this, then the things we think are promises made to us take on a very different light. It helps us to not be disappointed when God doesn't give us the things that we think he promised us, but he actually didn't. Let me give you a couple of examples. One of the promises that we often quote to each other is Philippians 4 verse 13. I am able to do everything through him who gives me strength. Right? We put this on a mug, you have it on your wall, maybe there's a, a little poster or something, cat hanging in there, I don't know. I can learn to fly because of him who gives me strength. I can do all things, right? I can learn how to dunk basketballs because of him who gives me strength. I can win this game, pass this exam, get this job, have a baby, find a husband, become a millionaire because of Christ who strengthens me, right? That's what the Bible says. That's God's promise to me. Is that not true? No. That promise is a promise that you will be sustained in your faith when you are persecuted, tortured or killed for your faith. God will be faithful. He will give you the strength to sustain you in that context, but he is not promising to give you superpowers to dunk basketballs. So don't be disappointed when you fail to learn how to dunk basketballs because he never promised you that. Jeremiah 29 verse 11, one of my favourite misquoted uh, or misappropriated texts, "'For I know the plans I have for you,' declares the Lord." Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. This, friends, is not a promise to keep you safe. It is not a promise to provide you with a good job or a promise to make you wealthy or keep you healthy. It is not a promise to give you the things you think will make you happy. This is a promise God makes to prosper his people in the middle of their exile in Babylon. In fact, he's telling them, to stay in Babylon even though they want to go back to Israel because they think that's best for them. Stay in the place of exile. 
Yes, Israel would once again prosper. Yes, God would bring them back from, Israel, uh, from exile. But they had to wait for 70 years. Things had to change before they could go back. A new king needed to come onto the throne. Nebuchadnezzar had to die. King Cyrus had to rise. And then Artaxerxes had to come after him. And for that to happen, Israel had to stay in exile, in the place of waiting, and they had to wait for 70 years, and most of them died before that promise was finally fulfilled, before they could go back to Jerusalem. This is a promise about how God is going to bring about the salvation of his people. He will look after them in the waiting. And because God kept his promise, ultimately Jesus was born. And our biggest need, the sin need to be taken care of, that has been taken care of. Because God had a plan for our well-being and it did not involve wealth or health or earthly success. It involved a sinless man being tortured and our sin being poured out on him and him dying in our place. That is how he gives us a hope for the future. The promises are not primarily about you. So when we wait upon the Lord, when we live in this in-between space between what is true for us today and what we would hope for the future, that is a lot easier if we don't think that God owes us what we think will make us happy. And when you grab hold of that truth in faith, you learn what it means to be content. So that's truth number two. It's a lot easier to live in the in-between space if God doesn't owe you anything. And truth number three is that waiting on the Lord in faith means that you trust in his timing. You see, friends, because we live in an everything now world, we can get very disappointed and disheartened when God doesn't act straight away. But that's not primarily how God works. It is true that God's timing is not our timing. He is in the business of eternity. These words in Chronicles were written four to five hundred years before Jesus was even born. This expectant hope for a Messiah would not be fulfilled for another four to five centuries. And the guy who wrote this died well before these promises came to fruition. Abram never saw the promise of the great nation that would come from him. Adam and Eve died while their relationship with God was still broken. The nation of Israel, instead of being the center of God's presence and blessing for the world, was a nation split apart by civil war. The line of David was all but wiped out. Israel died, oh sorry, Isaiah died before the Messiah he prophesied about was born. Ezekiel and Jeremiah died well before the Holy Spirit finally came. God waited to fulfill his promises until everything was just so, until the time was right. Greece and Rome had to start rising in power so that the conditions would be just right for the Messiah to be born and the gospel to be spread. Roads needed to be built so that the gospel could be taken. The Roman Empire had to be established and a single language had to be spoken throughout the known world so that people could share with one another the love of Christ. Only in the fullness of God's time, once everything was ready, 
Did he actually fulfill his promises? So waiting on the Lord means that we have to trust in his timing. And sometimes that, mean that, that means that we won't get the thing we're hoping for in this life. Someone once said, and I think they're right, that you might never get that thing that your heart so desperately wants. But whatever that thing represents, that deeper heart need that you believe that thing that you want will give you, that thing, that deeper heart need will be there in God's kingdom in abundance. If you're desperate to have a family, but for whatever reason that's impossible, in the future kingdom, whatever having a baby or a family represents to you, whether that's significance or love or or being part of something greater than yourself or whatever it is, that thing will be there with Jesus for all eternity. You will find its abundance in Christ in the future kingdom. God will stay true to his promises, but you may have to wait until you die before he gives you what your heart feels that it needs. He may also delay in giving you in this life what you've been praying for until it's lost its hold on you. Anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time will have experienced that you don't get the thing you really want until after you've stopped really wanting it. It's not until that thing has lost its spiritual hold on you that God gives it to you. And so God will not act until everything is ready. And so that's how we do it. That's how we wait upon the Lord. We wait in faith, knowing that God will always, always, always fulfill his promises. We wait in faith, remembering that God doesn't owe us anything. And we wait in faith knowing that God will do what he will do when the time is right. And when we do all of that, or sorry, we can do all of that because we know something the writer of Chronicles didn't know. Or rather, we know someone the writer of Chronicles didn't know. You see, he was waiting for the Messiah to come. But we're just waiting for the Messiah to come back. And so Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we uh, live in this in-between time where things are not yet perfect. We thank you for this book of Chronicles and the, and the thinking and the writing of, this, of the author of Chronicles who's put together um, a book that looks back on the history of Israel and looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. And Lord, as we consider all the things in Scripture, we look back to the Messiah that has already come and we look forward to him coming again. We recognize that there are things in our lives, Lord, that we want that are not good for us or that might not be good for us now. And so we pray, Lord, that you will remind us that uh, you will not act until things are ready. You will not give us things that will not be good for us and that you will, be, um, you will do all things in your perfect timing. Lord, help us to remember that everything we have is but a gift and a privilege from you. You don't owe us anything, Lord. 
You've already given us the thing that we needed most, which is your Son, who died on the cross to take away our sin. Let us live in the light and the hope of that truth. And so we pray that you will press this, uh, this into our hearts, shape us and change us accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.